0: Cam Trowbridge, welcome to the New School of Commonwealth. Thank you. Cam is the author of a book called Marconi, Father of Wireless, Grandfather of Radio, Great Grandfather of the Cell Phone, The Story of the Race to Control Long Distance Wireless. So, Cam, I'm interested in the fact that you are a lawyer and a businessman. And you're not Italian, you told me earlier.
1: Yes, that's true.
0: So what has drawn you to study and find out about and be interested enough in Marconi to write this uh, wonderful book that you have here?
1: I became fascinated uh, with Marconi by reading about some of his experiments. But what really intrigued me was that most of what he had done had really not been covered in a full and balanced way. And it was not just a scientific story because that story was covered with his long wave experiments up through his signaling from England to St. John's Newfoundland. But afterwards, he went on and became the dominant long wave wireless company in the world. And that wasn't covered, and then he obsoleted his own long waves with short waves, which is a fantastic thing for somebody to do. The other thing that wasn't covered was that he was an excellent businessman. He was a Silicon Valley startup, attic operator in the high-tech field 100 years before Silicon Valley. That wasn't emphasized, and then the fact that he went on to dominate his industry, not once, but twice, and he was a major officer of the company, and that is very, very unusual. There are very few examples of people who've created an industry as a scientist and then as a businessman helped run the company that dominated. That's the story that's never been told and my conclusion is that puts him among the greatest scientist businessmen in the industrial world.
0: Mm -hmm. And you you just told a story about how he um, has been compared to Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, and uh, one of the stories you were talking about when he was um, doing a, a presentation about, I believe it was his short, short waves, short waves um, reminded me of the videos I've seen of Steve Jobs getting up and you know announcing the iPad or the iPhone. And I just wonder if he if he was really a famous entrepreneur like Those men, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, of his time, what was he like? I mean, some of the stories in your books were so interesting. That was one of the things I really appreciated about the reading I've done in your books. Um, He's a fascinating man. He's fascinating as an individual and as a personality. Can you talk a little bit maybe about one of your favorite stories about him? Um, You can pick whatever, you know, as as a young man or as a famous celebrity.
1: Well, there are many stories that illustrate um, various aspects of his character, um, but one I like the most uh, is that he had a very dry sense of humor. He, as a child, was quite humorous and laughed a lot, but under all the duress of uh, the development of this wireless, uh, his humor uh, became submerged. But he was on a liner in the South Atlantic Um, experimenting, and he had a reputation as being a very hands-on person, and one of the things he was very hands-on was to get an antenna up in the air on a ship at any great height, the masts on the ship weren't high enough, so they flew kites, and Marconi could out-kite fly anybody, so everybody was on the stern of this ship, and nobody could get the kite up. And finally they turned to Marconi and said, would you please try? He said he would be glad to try. And he fiddled around for a little while and finally got everything the way he wanted it. Let the kite go and it flew right up in the air immediately. And they all said, see, you are the only one that knows how to do this. And at dinner that night he was sitting there chuckling to himself quietly. And somebody said, well, you know, what's so funny? What are you laughing about? And he said, well, you couldn't get the kite up because the direction of the ship and the direction of the wind made it impossible. But when none of you were listening, I asked the captain to change the direction of the ship. So he really had a nice, quiet uh, sense of humor.
0: That is really interesting. That shows a little bit about his personality. Um, reading from your book here, yes. there's a description of him in the Scientific American in 1903. Uh, which reads, When you first meet him, you'll know that he's not a cordial man, and yet you feel that he will not rebuff you, that he will probably do for you what he can. His manner is that of chilly reserve. For a successful inventor, Marconi appears in the least joyous of men. His features are melancholy in expression. They are not of those of a man fast approaching 40, but not those of a man of 28. So basically, he was... He was uh, aged, he had had prematurely aged, it sounds like, he was very serious, and yet he had, uh, sounds like, a little bit of a sense of humor. Yes. So Marconi is definitely an interesting personality, and one of the other interesting things for me is that he is uh, interested in fascism, and he joins the fascist party in 1923, it sounds like. Um, how does that fit in with these other pieces of his personality? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I think the answer is that Marconi was a patriotic Italian. He absolutely loved Italy. He and his father, when his at the early stages of his invention, offered to give. His invention to Italy, and it turned him down. But he did offer it. And throughout his career, any time he had a choice to make that related to his Italian citizenship, he always chose to be an Italian. He volunteered uh, to go into the war. He was a diplomat. He knew both kings that were uh, kings during uh, his life, because Marconi was such an important uh, figure. He gave Italy the right to use his patents without free of charge in Italy. He knew many of the prime ministers and he served uh, them in World War I. He served them after the war. Uh, he was named to the Italian Senate at age 40 because the Senate had the right to recognize people who made major contributions and once they turned 40 that was the youngest age at which they could be appointed in the Italian Senate appointed him as a senator. So I don't think he looked at it so much um, as fascism as he'd always been close to the people who were running the country. After all, the king appointed Mussolini in the beginning as prime minister. The pope reached a concordat with Mussolini. And although maybe late in his life he began to have some real hesitation, I think he was just a loyal Italian who wanted to get things done, and what he principally wanted to get done was his wireless mm-hmm. so as long as people supported him and left him alone uh, that 's what his interests were
0: mm-hmm. and I remember another um, story that I read about him in his you know mysterious workshop in the attic working on these um, with this different technologies and so forth and uh, and then trying to convince his mother and his father you know, that what he's doing is worthwhile and is unusual and unique. And I read somewhere that his father at some point was convinced and pulled out his wallet and said, here's some money for you to try to make it go of this. Is that something that you've heard or is that a, an urban myth?
1: Well, his father did very, very little for him um, as a boy in encouraging his electric experiments and he was very skeptical about the wireless and it wasn't until Marconi could send a wireless message over the hill to the other side that his father finally became convinced that Marconi had something. Up to that point his father had given him very little money and even after he was convinced his father didn't want to invest in him and uh, that's why Marconi and his father offered the invention to Italy so that Italy would develop it. It wasn't until then that his father began to appreciate Marconi but by then Marconi had become very bitter by the way his father had treated him throughout his young manhood.
2: And so they went to- I have
1: not heard the story. I've heard he gave him a little money but mm-hmm. but I haven't heard his story. He pulled out his wallet and mm-hmm. said here's some unspecified sum." Mm-hmm. But it may entirely be true but it's not anything I've come mm-hmm. across.
0: Okay. and So then he went to Britain to try to uh, find some interest and some funding for his projects there?
1: Yes. His mother uh, was Irish. Mm-hmm. And her cousin, um, it was the Irish Jameson Whiskey family. Her cousin was a uh, engineer broker in London and he had many friends who sold uh, corn to the distillery for it to use. So these were the early commodity dealers. So everybody's heard about the commodity dealers in New York. Well, this was the London counterpart, and these people had money. And so uh, Jameson went to these people and raised the money for Marconi's company, and he also introduced him to the top engineers in uh, London who helped support him but you were asking me earlier about some of Marconi's characteristics. Here is Marconi, aged 24, no business experience. The people who form his company are some of the leading financial commodity traders in London. They made up four members of the board of directors, and Jamison and Marconi were the fifth, and Jamison and Marconi primarily handle these people as if he was an experienced businessman. They just wanted to make a quick turnover. He wanted long-term investment Mm -hmm. in research, and that's what he got.
0: And he kept that vision throughout his whole life, it sounds like, almost uh, to the point of extreme.
1: It probably was extreme. I think he focused on that to the exclusion of his relationships with his Mm -hmm. wife, with his family, uh, and uh, he really didn't have many friends. He was absolutely focused on sending signals farther and farther and farther.
0: Mm. And so if we can jump for a minute to the more local stations here, um, it sounded to me like you. Um, there just isn't that much information about Marconi as a man, Um, Being involved with the decision around where the stations would be located or actually coming here to visit. Is that, am I understanding that correctly?
1: I have not found uh, evidence of his participation out here. The one thing uh, that came out of our conversation this evening that I'm hesitating over is that he may have gone to Hawaii because the Hawaiian station was not performing up to par and they absolutely needed the distance out of the Hawaiian station, and it may have been Marconi who went to Hawaii and uh, worked on that station, in which case he would have come through uh, uh, San Francisco. And it's entirely possible that was still in the early stage of developing Bellinas and Marshall, so he may have had uh, something to do with their location and their construction, and even if he didn't come through he may have had a a great deal to do with their engineering design, but I just haven't found in any records that I've seen particular evidence of his being here.
0: And what are the sources that you use to find out information? I know some of our listeners are going to be interested in finding out more information, particularly about these uh, West Coast stations. Can you divulge
1: any of that? Yes, I'm certainly very happy to. My general research um, was I read everything that I could find that was, had been written about him, but I also uh, looked at newspapers as primary sources uh, and read about his activities. But where I got a lot of information about Belinus and Marshall were from the annual reports of the British Marconi Company that controlled the American Marconi Company, and the annual reports of the American Marconi Company. I obtained those by going to uh, Chelmsford in England, where they had a factory and a Marconi uh, museum, and the man who was the archivist there was very generous, and he not only showed me the annual reports, but he let me copy them. Wow! So. When I came to come out here and talk, and when I also talked about uh, at Chatham, about the Chatham station, which is part of the same system as Bolinas and Marshall, I had all this material sitting in my files that was primary source material. So that's what I based the uh, report on tonight.
0: Hmm. And how long have you been researching this? It sounds like this has been almost a lifelong project for you.
1: Almost. (laughs) Half my life. It's been 30 years. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: So you've just slowly been finding out little bits and pieces, and then at what point did it coalesce into uh, uh, the idea for a book?
1: It started off as an idea for a book quite early. Mm -hmm. Um, But the process of getting published is very difficult, and... I had many different editions of the book. It's been as long as 800 pages and as short as 200 pages. And one of the interesting experiences is to submit your book to a publisher who then criticizes it and rejects it. So you then take all the criticism and rewrite the book according to the criticism and resubmit it and get rejected without a word the next time. So it's been through many um, configurations. And I never did get a publisher. It is a self-published book by CreateSpace, which is a subsidiary of Amazon. Uh, So uh, the publishing world is yet ready to embrace it.
0: Right. Have you had any feedback from um, any of the Marconi family or anything? Have you sent them a copy of it?
1: Oh, yes. Uh Uh, There's a daughter that lived in the United States um, who's died in the last several years. Uh, There is a daughter who's still alive in Rome. And um, I have given a number of people and various connections um, and relationships with the Marconi family Opportunities to comment uh, on the manuscript or participate in some way and none have been accepted
0: mm-hmm. interesting so one of the mo- one of the fascinating things for me in what I've read of your book as I said before is his personality the focus mm-hmm. of the personality on this man and he had kind of a from a story from maybe it was the time period I don't know if that's part of it but he seemed to have a, I guess I would say, romantic view uh, of what he was doing. It was very grand to him. It was a vision of beauty and truth that he uh, saw this scientific technology, you know, uh, sort of helping mankind in a very large way. And uh, I find that interesting. And it, I think it took that particular personality to do what he did, because as a scientist, uh, you might not have that view. And as a businessman, you might not have um, that view either. So for him to, to have almost a romantic version, view is fascinating to me. And this is one of the passages that we'll end with here, I think. The message, messages wireless 10 years ago have not reached some of the nearest stars. When they arrive there, why should they stop? It's like the attempts to express one-third as a decimal fraction. You can go on forever without coming to any sign of an end. It's no use interrogating the universe with a formula. You've got to observe it, take what it gives you, and then reflect upon it with the aid of reason and experience. I like to be out in the open, looking at the universe, asking it questions, letting the mystery of it soak right into the mind, admiring the wonderful beauty of it all and then think my way to the truth of things.
1: Yes, I think it's a wonderful passage and I'm delighted that uh, you have brought it up because I think you have captured the, the inner man of Marconi and his wish to develop this uh, magnificent means of communication to the fullest extent.
0: Thanks. Thank you very much, Cam Trowbridge, being here with us at the Thank New School. Thank you very much.
1: I've certainly enjoyed talking with you. Okay. Thank you.
0: I'm Kira Epstein. Please stay tuned for a presentation from Cam Trowbridge.
3: Well, I think it's time to get started, so I'd like to just um, do a brief introduction. I'm Carola DeRoy. I'm the um, head of the museum program here at Point Reyes National Seashore, and we're going to um, hear a fascinating talk tonight uh, by Cam Trowbridge about... um, Marconi's time and goals and the things that he did in in Bellinas and Marshall to build the station and how that was integrated within his worldwide network and goals of uh, making the world connected through wireless around the globe. And then what happened as a result of him building the stations uh, out here from his point of view, from Marconi's point of view. So... um, Cam also wrote this book on Marconi, father of wireless, grandfather of radio, and great grandfather of the cell cell phone. So these are here tonight as well, after the talk to look through and purchase if you'd like. So I'd like to introduce Cam Trowbridge.
1: Thank you. And the first thing I'm going to do with these books is turn them into a little stand for my speech, so they will have some function here tonight. But I would like to thank you, Carola, for the very nice introduction, and for all the arrangements you've made, and for inviting me here. And um, just a little organizational detail, what I'm going to do first is talk about uh, the Bellinas and Marshall uh, stations, as I understand them and where they fit, as Carola said, into the scheme of things. And then I have um, a handful of pictures that are more personal about Marconi himself. Uh, and I'll talk about those pictures uh, after that. Uh, and then questions and answers. And of course, uh, anytime you want to interrupt, that is also fine. We, this is a nice informal setting uh, with people who know a great deal about Marconi. And I suspect, in a number of instances, more than I know, so this is a great sharing of information tonight. And if I drop my voice and you can't hear me or something, just put your hand up so I make sure that uh, everybody can hear what I'm saying. But to put things in perspective, Marconi was born in April 1874, just four years after the Point Reyes Lighthouse was built. He died in 1937, just 25 years before President John F. Kennedy signed legislation to establish the Point Reyes National Seashore. In 1901, Marconi, age 27, was the first to send a signal across the Atlantic Ocean 2,170 miles from Polhue in Cornwall, England, to St. John's, Newfoundland. Ever since he first learned about wireless at age 20 in 1894, all Marconi ever wanted to do was to send wireless signals and messages greater and greater distances, even around the world. It was Marconi's dream. Marconi's American company, American Marconi, was one of a handful of small wireless companies struggling against the giant, dominant U.S. company, United Wireless. In 1911, ten years after Marconi's first transatlantic signal, American Marconi extended its activities to San Francisco and the Pacific Coast, American Marconi reported to its stockholders that it met with a warm reception and a hearty welcome. Offices were opened in San Francisco and Seattle. Three land stations were opened for maritime wireless communication, one being at San Francisco, and 13 steamers were equipped with Marconi wireless. These installations brought the number of American Marconi land stations to five and its shipboard installations to 40. Other small companies were United Fruit and Reginald Fessenden's National Electric Signaling. In California, Cyril Ewell's Federal Wireless Telephone and Telegraph held the U.S. rights to the ARC transmitter of Danish engineer Valdemar Poulsen. Ewell had stations at Sacramento and Stockton. United Wireless, founded by Lee DeForest, was everywhere. It had 70 shore stations on the Pacific Coast, the Gulf Coast, the Atlantic Coast, and throughout the Great Lakes. Its equipment was on 500 ships. DeForest had opened station PH in San Francisco in 1906. In order to try to put a dent into United Wireless' juggernaut, American Marconi had filed a lawsuit against United Wireless, claiming its equipment infringed on Marconi's patents. In March 1912, United Wireless was brought to its knees. A U.S. grand jury had indicted United Wireless's founder, Lee Forrest, his lawyer, and two sellers of United Wireless Stock. Charging they had misused the United States mails to defraud the United Wireless stockholders and that they had misappropriated funds received from the stock sales. American Marconi won its patent suit. The court ruled that United Wireless Equipment infringed Marconi patents. The indictment chilled the interest of investors in United Wireless stock. The patent infringement raised the question of whether United Wireless could reconfigure its equipment to avoid infringing on Marconi's patents. If not, with what equipment could United Wireless continue to operate? Because United Wireless had entered into money-losing contracts, sacrificing profitability for growth, It needed cash flow from its stock sales to stay afloat. Investors, however, refused to buy more stock. United Wireless ran out of money and had no choice but to file for bankruptcy. Marconi's British company, that owned a majority of American Marconi stock, jumped at the chance to buy American Marconi's largest competitor, the dominant company in the American market. British Marconi agreed to buy United Wireless's assets out of bankruptcy and resell United Wireless's <coughs> excuse me United States' assets to American Marconi. British Marconi directed American Marconi to raise 7 million dollars by selling 7 100,000 American Marconi shares at $10 a share, and to use a part of the proceeds to purchase United Wireless's U.S. assets and to reconstitute United Wireless's money losing contracts. The transaction not only made American Marconi the dominant United States wireless company, it made British Marconi the dominant worldwide wireless power. In ship-to-shore, the vast majority of shore stations were controlled by Marconi. Most ships carried Marconi transmitting and receiving equipment. Marconi sets outperformed the competition. In long-distance communication, Marconi owned and or operated almost every one of the superstations. In terms of the distance, Marconi could send a signal. He had no peers. The crown to Marconi's effort to fell into place in July. British Marconi and the United Kingdom General Post Office, which was responsible for that country's telephone, telegraph, and wireless services, it was the largest communication organization in the world, signed a detailed work contract with British Marconi for an imperial wireless network. It would connect the British Isles with Egypt, Aden, Bangalore, Singapore, and Pretoria, and undoubtedly, ultimately, Australia and New Zealand. Once the Imperial Wireless Network was constructed and operational, Marconi would realize his dream, his dearest ambition. Information could be sent around the world on a regular basis by wireless. American Marconi, was a company transformed. In addition to its own year-earlier thrust onto the Pacific coast, it now owned and controlled all of United Wireless's Pacific coast shore stations and communicated with the United States Pacific Ocean Merchant Marine. The number of ship and shore equipments operated by American Marconi, including United Wireless's, was 20 times greater than the number American Marconi had been operating three years earlier. American Marconi had jumped from a 10% market share to a near monopoly. American Marconi also had a substantial amount of money remaining from its stock sale in excess of what it used to buy United Wireless's assets. American Marconi was elated. It reported to its stockholders... The British government, acknowledging the wonderful work done by the Marconi system and by Dr. Marconi, has made a contract with British Marconi for the erection of six long-distance high-power stations at a cost of $300,000 per station. I think the exchange rate was about 20 to 1 from a dollar then to a dollar now. So we're talking about $6 million a station. The time spoken of And this is very important to the company. The time spoken of for some years has now come when your own company, American Marconi, taking advantage of the wonderful improvements perfected and work done by Dr. Marconi, feels it should forge ahead and keep up with the march of improvement. Arrangements are now in progress, whereby a station will be erected at the earliest possible moment on the Pacific coast, whereby communication will be had with the Hawaiian Islands, the Philippines, and possibly Japan and China, with the further idea of extending our work to Australia and the southeastern islands, connecting eventually with the British Imperial Wireless Network. In short, American Marconi was going to build its own Imperial Wireless Network. It would start in Norway with access To Northern Europe and Russia, cross the Atlantic Ocean to Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and New Jersey, leap over the United States to San Francisco, hop across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii, Japan, and the Philippines and China, and eventually interconnect with the British Imperial Wireless Network in Australia and New Zealand. It would be part of Marconi's wireless girdle around the Earth. It was Marconi's dream come true. To span the globe with a series of high-powered wireless transmitters, the dream was about to become reality. To build its network, American Marconi contracted with the J.G. White Engineering Company of New York City in 1913, and White was going to build all of the stations. The Pacific Coast transmitting station was to be built at Bellina's, and its receiving counterpart in Marshall on Tamales Bay. These stations were also the foundation for the ship to shore and land stations known today as KPH. Am I okay with that, Richard? Yep. Good. In Hawaii, the transmitter was to be at Kahuku and the receiver at Cocoa Head. On the east coast in New Jersey, a transmitter would be built at New Brunswick and a receiver at Belmar. The Massachusetts interface across the Atlantic Ocean to Stavanger, Norway, would be a receiver on Cape Cod at Chatham, which by remote landline control would operate a transmitter at Marion on Buzzards Bay. Each high-power station was to be constructed for a duplex service, and each was to be furnished with apparatus for automatic transmission and reception. In anticipation of the new international service, American Marconi entered into agreements with the Western Union Telegraph Company and Great Northwestern Telegraph Company, whereby 30,000 telegraph offices of the two corporations would be available for the delivery and receipt of Marconi-grams throughout the United States and Canada. On September 24, 1914, the Bellinas and Marshall stations were dedicated and service opened between San Francisco and Honolulu. American Marconi reported to its shareholders. The service, with but few interruptions of short duration due to the failure of the power company to supply current, has been working continuously ever since. The service rendered has been most satisfactory and almost without complaint from the public. The quote continues, This service was inaugurated with a substantial reduction in the rates established and maintained by the cable company over a period of some 11 years' operations. As a result, your company secured most of the business. And notwithstanding the fact that the cable company was compelled some months since to reduce their rates to meet ours, the volume of wireless traffic still shows a continued increase Two new classes of messages, the night letter and the weekend letter, which were introduced into the wireless service, became very popular with the Hawaiians. American Marconi also warned its stockholders of a growing threat. The United States Postmaster General was recommending that his department be authorized to acquire and operate the telegraph and telephone systems. The Navy Department was recommending that it control wireless. In July 1915, the Japanese, Marconi station, the Japanese Marconi wireless plant at Funabashi, near Yokohama, opened with messages to Cocoa Head, Hawaii, 5,600 miles across the Pacific. By means of Japanese government cables, service could be extended to China, Manchuria, and other Far Eastern countries. The Hawaiian stations were two-way stations. They could operate with Japan and California simultaneously. This opened the trans-Pacific portion of Marconi's dream. Wireless signals now regularly connected the American and Asian continents. Marconi wireless messages originating at British Marconi's wireless station at Polhue in Cornwall, England, and sent to the United States could be relayed with American Marconi's point-raise stations two-thirds of the way around the world. The Atlantic portion of the American Marconi wireless girdle around the earth, between Stavanger, Norway, and Massachusetts, however, had been prevented from opening by the outbreak of World War I in Europe. During 1916, an increasing volume of traffic with Japan was being handled under government censorship at a tariff one-third lower than the submarine cables. In January 1917, hearings were held in Congress on a bill strongly supported by the Secretary of Navy, Josephus Daniels, which would authorize the Navy to operate wireless stations in competition with private firms even in peacetime. Following the declaration of war by the United States on Germany, President Wilson, on April 7, 1917, ordered the immediate taking over by the Navy Department for military purposes of all radio stations, including high-power stations, including Marconi's New Jersey, California, and Hawaii stations. The Navy took over 53 Marconi shore stations and 370 Marconi installations on ocean-going vessels. No commercial traffic could be accepted for transmission by wireless through any station. All stations were operated for governmental and public message traffic by U.S. Navy personnel. Three weeks after the armistice was declared on November 11, 1918, American Marconi sold its coastal and ship stations to the United States Navy. Effective November 30, the Navy owned and operated the stations and furnished and employed the necessary personnel. American Marconi still owned the Bellina Station and two other high-power transmitting stations at Marion, Massachusetts, in New Brunswick, New Jersey, but all three were operated by the Navy. In its history of the American Marconi Company, the Old Timers Bulletin reported that on July 11, 1919, President Wilson approved the return of radio stations to their former owners, effective March 1, 1920. Because of the importance of wireless in the war, it was generally felt that the United States' commercial communication systems should be owned by an American company. American Marconi had not pushed the sale of its stock in the United States, so a majority was foreign-owned, a large block by British Marconi. This, the old-timers bulletin said, caused bitter feeling against American Marconi. In addition, a 200-kilowatt Alexanderson alternator had been developed by General Electric, The alternator outperformed American Marconi's 300-kilowatt-timed spark stations. Marconi had been negotiating with General Electric for exclusive rights to the the Alexanderson alternator before the United States entered the war, and he returned to the negotiations right after the end of the war. This move the United States Navy intended to block. Marconi also intended to restart and complete his wireless girdle around the Earth. The British already predominantly controlled the Transoceanic Cable Company. If Marconi's British company and its international subsidiaries, including American Marconi, completed a Marconi's dream of a world encircling wireless system, the United States would have no meaningful control over rapid transoceanic communication. The war was over. But the United States government, led by the United States Navy, during World War I had come to realize how important it was in war and in peace to control rapid, long distance communication over the oceans. The U.S. Navy told Marconi that it might not return American Marconi's United States assets. That the U.S. might require licenses to transmit transoceanic messages from U.S. soil, and that licenses might not be granted to companies like American Marconi that were controlled by foreigners, i.e., British Marconi. Wouldn't it be better, the United States Navy suggested to British Marconi, for British Marconi to sell American Marconi's assets to a U.S. company, General Electric? and General Electric's new subsidiary, the Radio Corporation of America, RCA, that would be organized for the purpose of holding and operating American Marconi's assets. British Marconi was suffering after World War I. It had cash flow problems. Military equipment orders had disappeared. Neither the United States nor Great Britain had returned its long-distance wireless stations. The U.K. had not reimbursed British Marconi for its wartime cryptology services. Much of British Marconi's equipment had been obsoleted by wartime improvements. Its wireless operators returning from wartime service wanted their jobs back. Nonetheless, welcome as the cash from the sale of American Marconi might be, Marconi did not want British Marconi to sell American Marconi to GE. The sale of American Marconi would remove British Marconi's presence from half of wireless's commercial world. British Marconi held a near worldwide monopoly without a peer. Suddenly, overnight, it would have an enormous competitor, RCA, using American Marconi's employees, assets, patent rights, and know-how against British Marconi. Perhaps worst of all, (coughs) excuse me, RCA would have a powerful parent organization backing it General Electric. British Marconi had no parent. Marconi and British Marconi yielded to the pressure. GE and RCA acquired American Marconi's assets and its former assets held by the United States Navy at the end of the year, 1919. The property transfers to RCA, including, I believe, both the Bellinas and the Marshall stations, was completed in 1920. British Marconi had been removed from the United States. The United States portion of, America, of Marconi's dream to build a worldwide long distance transoceanic wireless system was gone. But Marconi did not give up. In 1922, in a dress before the New York Institute of Radio Engineers, Marconi amazed his audience. With a miniature transmitter focused by a reflector, he shot waves of only one meter length along the stage lights to a receiver 20 feet away. It instantly sounded a clear note. When he turned the reflector's cup-like opening so that it no longer faced the receiver, the note was almost Inaudible. Marconi explained, progress made with long waves was so rapid, so comparatively easy, that it distracted practically all attention from short waves. In 1923, Marconi had revived his dream to build the British Imperial Wireless Network. He committed to build enormous, expensive, long-wave stations to communicate directly between England and Australia and England and South Africa incorporating huge power plants and extremely high multiple tower aerials. But Marconi's success with his shortwave experiments, attaining distances approaching those of long waves, had disturbing implications. Shortwaves did not require massive generators. Antenna were less complex. If his shortwave progress persisted, Marconi could obsolete the principal creation of his long-wave efforts over the past 30 years. He said, The results of these experiments have convinced me that I am at the beginning of a revolution in our ideas about the validity of the theory upon which long-distance telegraphy depends. I believe that with short-wave stations of only moderate power, it will be possible to obtain an excellent commercial service. Marconi and British Marconi faced an immediate crisis. The contracts with Australia and South Africa required the two countries to make huge capital payments for long-wave, thousand-kilowatt, superpower stations, and enormous antenna systems. The short-wave experiment suggested that it might be possible to create these communication systems with only 10% of the power needed for long waves. This would result in significant cost savings. But the tests were only in the preliminary stage. Marconi had signaled halfway around the globe with the short waves for only a month. He had absolutely no operating experience with short waves. If Marconi and British Marconi recommended short waves to the governments of Great Britain, Australia, and South Africa and had to guarantee performance The failure to achieve the performance could bankrupt the company. To Marconi, the answer was clear. He offered shortwave to the three governments. They accepted with stringent performance standards. In 1927, Marconi demonstrated the Australia-Great Britain system. It produced words at a rate three times the contract requirement. South Africa did as well relatively little additional labor and electric expense were required to reach this rate of production. Consequently, cost per word fell drastically. Profit margin climbed steeply with volume. Clearly, with this production rate, shortwave could more than compete with cable. Marconi and British Marconi with shortwave had arrived at crippling dominance." British authorities were not pleased. They had poured money into the British cable systems, which dominated world cable. UK officials saw the same issues that had earlier upset President Wilson and Secretary of the Navy, U.S. Navy Josephus Daniels. They feared control of vital, long-distance communication would be out of their hands. In 1928, the British Parliament passed the Imperial Telegraphs Bill, forcing British Marconi to merge with a consortium of cable companies into a new company, Cable and Wireless. British Marconi shareholders received a minority of the shares in Cable and Wireless. Cable dominated management and had no interest in promoting wireless. Marconi was given no management role. He was assigned to a research subsidiary. Marconi had lost control of his dream. Thank you. Questions? Yes.
2: How did you get interested in uh, this topic area of Marconi? Right. Were you a ham or a radio engineer in your previous life?
1: No, I read a little squib about Marconi experimenting in the attic of Villagrafone, where he grew up in the attic where his grandfather raised the silkworms, working 724 to try to make this thing work after Riggy had told him he had no business experimenting with it. And as I started reading, I became more and more fascinated with him. And then what particularly fascinated me is most biographies concentrate on Marconi up to the time he sent the first signal to St. John's. But he was only partway through his career because, as I pointed out, in the 20s uh, he developed uh, shortwave. And as a businessman, he's very unusual. He was a classic Silicon Valley startup, attic startup, uh, raised money from family members, went on with the acquisition of United Wireless and the, the prior work in uh, Europe to dominate the industry that he had created, and then with the shortwave, even after he'd lost American Marconi with the shortwave, he came back and threatened to dominate the cable industry, as well as the wireless industry, and throughout this whole period, he was a principal officer of his company. And when you stop and think about it, or at least when I stop to think about it, I can think of very few people who both created, as a scientist, a whole industry, and then stayed with it as a principal officer and helped to run the company that came to dominate the industry. And the people that come to mind are not Bell and Edison, because Bell and Edison, great as they were as innovators and inventors, didn't stay with the companies that turned uh, their inventions into major enterprises. Steve Jobs and Bill Gates did. Uh, so I put, him, uh, I, I put him as one of the greatest scientists, businessmen, um, in the industrial world. And that story hasn't been told in any of the biographies because, as I said, most of the biographies concentrate on his science up to the point of uh, his first transatlantic uh, transmission. Yes? How much time did he spend in the San Francisco Point Reyes area? I don't think he spent uh, very much time. I know he took a victory lap in 1930 with his second wife and came to San Francisco and uh, was taken, I was a little bit later, 33, and was taken across the bridge which hadn't opened yet. 10,000 San Franciscans visited him. Uh, I was talking to Kathy up at the Marconi Center. They have not found uh, any record as far as I know or she could tell me of Marconi coming to visit that station. I haven't talked to you uh, people and Richard about whether he ever came um, to Bellinas, but most of his activity was with the uh, Massachusetts stations and in New York and in Nova Scotia with the Glace Bay station. And I'm really not aware of his coming west. The one time he tried to come west earlier, didn't try to come west, was when his first engagement was to a woman named Josephine Holman who came from Indianapolis. And she hung around in London waiting for him you know, to perfect the engagement with the marriage and finally she went home and started to set up all the arrangements. He was too interested in setting up the South Wellfleet station. He got to New York. His mother wanted to go with him and they would all go to see Josephine and he said, I don't want either one of you. I'm going to South Wellfleet. So he never got further west than Navasink, which is where they put the station up for the wireless uh, the first wireless uh, sports event in the United States when he covered the America's Cup with Shamrock and Columbia too. So maybe some of you um, know or are familiar with uh, trips out here, but um, the principal activities were, as far as I know, the ones I outlined in the uh, in the talk. Yes? When the Navy took over his network, didn't they pay him something? Yes. I don't know what the amount was, and it was probably some appraised uh, asset value, but. You know, it's like the uh, Visa or the Master Charge card. Some things are priceless. And whatever the cash flow was, it couldn't possibly come close to the damage that it did to uh, his company overall. Yes? Did he also experiment with ground wave transmissions? I don't think so. Um, I think that was more Tesla's area. Um, As far as I know, Marconi was primarily um, aerial. Uh, transmissions. The um, Chatham station, now part of the same network and some of you may be familiar with the Chatham uh, Marconi Maritime Center which is very much like the operation you have here. They're operating the um, receiving station as a transmitter now in Chatham and they have preserved buildings. Uh, They are now a National Historic Landmark. Uh, They've received grants from Verizon and from uh, Erickson uh, for educational purposes. They just opened their museum uh, this June, and it's uh, wonderful. They lost out. That station, which was supposed to be part of um, the Navy's, uh, when the Navy took over, uh, receiving and transmitting, they had troubles receiving, and apparently the station in Maine had much better luck with... uh, Putting its ground in the water, and had much better reception to get it at, at either Belmar or at um, uh, at Chatham. So I don't I don't think ground or water was ever um, a major uh, research area of Marconi's. Yes. In your research, did you run into anything from people
2: Bay may have worked what does he like to work
1: for? We've heard stories
2: of Steve Jobs and Yes, how right. rough he was, but...
1: No, Marconi um, was a hands-on leader. I mean, not only was he good in hands-on and experimentation, but he could coil a line faster than anybody else, uh, and he really just loved working with his hands. And there are some wonderful occasions um, at the Haven Hotel outside of Poole, uh, where everybody moved down. He hired a couple of very good engineers and he had some other work people and they moved into the Haven Hotel. Their families came down and lived with them. In the evening they played the violin. Uh, his mother came and she sang and Marconi played the piano. And when he uh, received, did his first transmission from France to um, uh, England, uh, from Wimaru to uh, East Foreland uh, by the Thames River, uh, the same thing happened there. there. There are scenes of the men all sitting around having a good time after dinner, drinking a little wine. Uh, very uh, congenial and cordial. So that was one aspect. Um, I think he gotten so burned out by humiliation during his childhood and failure and lack of recognition that he had developed this uh, absolute coldness. So... When he was going to do the St. John's experiment, he built a huge ring of 20 masts 200 feet high in Poldhue, and another similar ring in South Wellfleet. His concept was he needed enormous power and great height to span the ocean. Well, a hurricane knocked Cornwall down, and he had to rebuild the mast with just one mast. And after that, with three weeks to go and almost out of money, a hurricane destroyed South Wellfleet. Well, the people with him said, he just went and looked at the records and said, it'll be rebuilt or I'll do something. Just absolutely, uh, I guess he was such a uh, hands-on trial and error experimenter that he was accustomed uh, to failure. So he had this coldness. But this coldness also was in a lot of his personal relationships. So He didn't have um, a lot of friends. He had a man named Soleri who'd been a childhood friend who was probably the closest person during his life. Um, He had enormous infatuations. I don't think he uh, had any experience with girls. Uh, He was homeschooled till he was eight. He went to all boys' schools. Uh, It wasn't until he came to the United States to do the Shamrock and the uh, Columbia that Thomas Lipton, who had the Shamrock, took Marconi by the arm and took him out at night and took him into society. So he fell for woman after woman. I mean, he'd just, he'd just be absolutely wild about them, out of his mind until they would consent to uh, you know, be his wife. And then he'd lose interest in them. And then he'd go back to his uh, wireless. So he had, and each time the woman was younger, so the first two women are his contemporaries, Josephine Holman from Indianapolis and a woman from New York. Then he fell for Beatrice O'Brien, who was eleven years younger, and they were both social animals because by this time Marconi was world famous. I mean when his Salisbury experiments about five years earlier, the press was absolutely fascinated. In the English Channel experiment, he had worldwide coverage. He was the most interviewed man in the world. There were no movie stars. There was no television. There was no football. And so major figures like kings and, and um, political figures and Marconi were the news. That's what everybody wrote about. So... He and Beatrice Beatrice, being a direct descendant of Brian Baruch, she was Irish royalty, and everybody wanted them, and they were both very social animals. Marconi made eighty five trips uh, during his career uh, across the Atlantic, going either east or west. Well, there he was for a week long, sitting on a boat, and his wife was at home and Once, when she was pregnant and couldn 't wait to tell him this news, she hired a tug in Ireland, and went out the boat to meet him, and, you know, here she comes in, the water's been pouring all over, she comes into the salon in the evening, he has absolutely no idea that she's going to be there, what is he surrounded by? He's surrounded by the singers, the actresses, you know, and all the big figures. So, their marriage just couldn't last. And Marconi, in addition to these infatuations, was terribly jealous. I mean, he just couldn't have anybody looking at Beatrice. So, his last wife was 20 years younger than he was. So, he had this emotional uh, up and down of, of jealousy and infatuation and desire and then lack of interest. And he sometimes he got very depressed. Um, you know, he'd run out of money. The board wouldn't support his activity. They wanted money making things. So these are some of the uh, characteristics. And the other characteristics is perseverance. I mean, this is what he wanted to do. He put it ahead of his children. He put it ahead of his wife. He put it ahead of Everything. All he wanted to do was to send signals as far as he possibly could, and that's what he dedicated uh, his life to. Yes. Did he do his antenna design also for these stations? I think he had help. Uh, he had three or four engineers that had been that he hired that were very good, and I think. Uh, the short wave. A lot of the short wave engineering was not his. I, I think they did the uh, uh, the coaxial cable come out of the work for the short waves, and there was something else, cat or something, uh, cooled anoid. Uh, you wouldn't recognize. But there were two major inventions, and those those weren't his. Those were his engineers. So in, in the beginning, he did for the long waves, he did the uh, the antenna construction, and. His most famous one is the bent directional antenna, because before that he would either had circles of mass or wires going out like this. And when he was trying to establish regular commercial service in the beginning with long waves between England and Glace Bay, he solved his problem of daytime distance by turning the antenna away from the station and that increased an enormous Uh, Distance, but that's the last antenna creation that I'm aware of.
3: Yes. Um, Well, we have this the stations here, and of course in in the wealth lead. But how much of the original percentage of the worldwide buildings and stations that were originally created do you think remain?
1: I think is what you have here and what they have at uh, Chatham. Um, everything else? There's
3: some buildings in Hawaii. Could be there might be. Yeah. Just pretty much. Um, I'm,
1: I, I'm really speaking to the United States. I'm, I'm really not familiar with um, uh, the people I've talked to who have visited the places in um, Ireland and England just report stones or a stump or a, you know, a cement. So I, th- I think what you have here and what Chatham has um, is important not only just as a uh, wireless maritime station, but as being part of a world-encircling uh, wireless system and being his very first effort in that area. So I, I think uh, you both have something very valuable. Yes? How did he happen to pick Bolinas? Um... I don't really know. Uh, I was talking about that uh, at Marshall today with Kathy, and one of the reasons I think um, for Marshall, and probably true for balloons, is that a railroad line came down, so he got as close to the ocean as he could. San Francisco was obviously very much in their mind, and that was probably a distance thing to Hawaii and and to Japan. And so they got some height out there with the headlands, they got close to the ocean, and they had a railroad so that all the antenna material and and the generators, because those are absolutely huge machines. Um, So I suspect it was the railroad and the closeness to the Pacific that led to those um, uh, selections. But as for precisely Bellinas and precisely Marshall, um, may have been land that was available, when he built his Southwell fleet station, he got a local man and they spent a month um, going up and down Cape Cod looking for the combination of no interference from the station to the ocean, height and ownership availability. So I've uh, the, probably the same process here. Does anyone have information that dovetails or doesn't dovetail or is inconsistent or would make this account more complete. Yes, Richard.
2: Just on that selection process uh, for Bolinas, the, um, the railroad actually, if I have it correctly, didn't, didn't service Bolinas, and the equipment for the station was brought by Schooner, the Schooner Owl, actually, to the Bolinas wharf that was reinforced mm. to be able to support the equipment that you were mentioning in, in, its, in its massive weight. And we have uh, two photographs, one showing horses, the other showing a 20-mule team uh, literally dragging this stuff on sledges, not even wheel vehicles, but sledges, off, up Mason Road uh, to the Bolinas site. And even more extraordinary, we were, and this is just within the last, I think, six months, scroll or something like that, we were talking about uh, creating a document here for the park, and somebody said um, in one of the Marconi cottages at the Bolinas site there's two cottages in the hotel, there's a workbench. And he happened to have looked underneath the workbench and then looked up at the underside of the workbench. Who knows what? But on there, you see the plank. The workbench was made of a plank from a shipping container, Hmm. a shipping crate that says, Marconi Station, Bolinas Cutter Powell, Hmm. and it says the pier that it was being shipped from. So it just sort of made that that circle. And the other thing was, they didn't have to generate their power on site. Uh, A lot of the other Marconi stations were remote enough like the ones in Hawaii, they had a power station Mm -hmm. there. Here in Bolinas they brought in lines from two separate substations, um, Woodacre and Alto, and we still have those switch positions on the switchboard down there. So it was a money saving thing, they didn't have to build a power plant there. They did at the receive site, but that was much less demanding, much smaller power plant would do it.
1: Yeah, power was a a major uh, consideration. One of the English stations was in a peat bog, and they had to build a two-mile railroad to bring the peat, to burn, to generate um, the electricity. So that probably was a prime factor that uh, they could get in there. They were running an inverse alternator
2: here? Uh, Actually, uh, two Alexanderson alternators at the Linus Building 1, which still exists, um, so there were two of them, uh, each one 200,000 watts. And as best we can tell, the Marconi antenna and its towers that went with the original Marconi transmitter there were modified to comply with what Alexanderson needed for that open of transmission.
1: And of course, Alexanderson was one of the big reasons the Navy chose um, GE rather than AT and T, which is the other major communication company at the time because GE controlled the Alexanderson um, alternator uh, so it was a natural um, fit. I read those were just pushed off the
2: cliff for some reason. Uh, No. uh, (laughs) If they were we'd be down there digging for them. (laughs) Um, One of them was shipped off to Hawaii during the Second World War, and the other one was scrapped. And it did go over the cliff. We, When they said scrapped, I pictured cutting up the torches and carting away. So uh, that's what we know about them. What yep. was okay. the longest distance Marconi had attained in point-to-point communication prior to the Bellinas transmitting site going in? <laughs> Or was that the longest distance that it
1: had to lead to Hawaii and other points east? Uh, probably his span from South Wellfleet to Polhue was the longest before that 5,600 miles. I, I've
2: uh, been curious as to how they, how those engineers, I mean, obviously there's risk involved with establishing the station here, but once you built it, you had to know in advance that it would, in fact, work. And I was wondering how they got that knowledge.
1: Uh, well, I've read snippets that the Hawaii station was very disappointing. Now, this, this is making me think, maybe he did come here because I think he went to Hawaii and worked on that station, and they got the Hawaiian station up to the ability to cover from Hawaii to uh, California. But I don't think he worked on the Japanese station, personally, but obviously he had Marconi engineers. Um, But that had to have been a two-way transmission. So I think something happened in Hawaii and Japan uh, in terms of engineering that uh, achieved that result. And he hadn't needed that distance before, I think even, no, I, I, I think that's probably right. I think probably the the, the View South Whale fleet was the longest um, until they achieved that between Japan and Hawaii. But I don't know exactly. Do you know, Richard, does that ring any bell with you? I, I I'm
2: not, we're talking about the long wave here.
1: Still in the long waves, we're still in the, before World War One
2: Yeah, so I, I guess uh, leaps like to Hawaii, now we heard, um, maybe you me if we're wrong or not, that um, the idea was uh, Bolinas to Hawaii, to Japan, and back in the other direction, but at some point the Japanese station was able to hear Bolinas directly. Did you ever turn up anything to confirm that?
1: Well, I know I saw a chart today on, on the wall in um, Marshall with a direct dot from Bolinas to Funabashi, and then also a dot to Hawaii and back up. So that would suggest that, that perhaps that was accomplished. Now, I don't know, but I don't, I don't remember a date on the map, so I don't know whether that was RCA or with, afterwards with the Alexanderson or whether it was. I'm Nothing I have read said that while Marconi had the station, they had direct transmission between California and Japan. Yes. I've
2: seen a picture of David Sarnoff with this cane posing with Marconi and trying to emulate him. Did they get along at all
1: or was that just a show? Or was he uh, last night somebody said, well, of course, Sarnoff uh, fixed Marconi up with women. And <laughs> that was me. That was you. Oh, you asked me. That was you who asked me that. That's right. That, thank you for reminding me. It also came up again. Um, last night. So I thought about it. I told you uh, that su- the comment surprised me, and I hadn't seen any evidence of that. Sarnoff uh, migrated as a young man uh, to New York, and uh, he supported his family, and I think he was about age 13, he went to work uh, for the American Marconi Company in New York uh, as a messenger, as a runner. And then he rose up very rapidly through the ranks. but by the time of World War I, he was still third level. There was a chairman uh, and there was a president, and Sarnoff had uh, raised to the level of traffic manager, which is where he became so knowledgeable about um, uh, how everything ran. But it's hard for me to imagine that Marconi, who by this time you know was absolutely world famous, um, would have needed Sarnoff to introduce him to anybody. I mean, I would be surprised if they socialized.
2: Yeah, and I checked on that after our interview, and I finally remember where I heard it. Yes, it's in Ken Burns' Empire of the Air, the, uh, the, the television version of the book, and in there, and I just looked at it last night, he, he talks about, he doesn't, he doesn't really say introduce them, but he says for the delicate task of delivering flowers to Marconi's
1: uh, young women. So I don't know how true that is, but at least that's where I I see. And he did Did he have a footnote? Did he have a citation? No, it was just in the film, <laughs> yeah. so I didn't mention it. All right, so then, so now that takes us up to World War One. Now, Sarnoff wasn't one of the top managers that negotiated the deal with RCA, but obviously the American officers were very uncomfortable because here they were, they were Americans, their country wanted to control wireless and they were working for a British company, but they did participate in negotiations before they went to British Marconi uh, about this um, transfer. So in 1920, Marconi couldn't have had two great feelings about his American management, and he no longer owned them, so he had no connection. So then I thought, I was thinking, well, clearly the answer to Richard's comment is after 1920, he never would have seen Sarnoff. Not true, I've seen a picture in 1923, and I'm not sure about the date of the picture you were saying, uh, where he came over here and he visited Sarnoff. Well, he still wanted to go to General Electric for the British company, so I guess he must have swallowed whatever animosity he had. Uh, and saw Sarnoff, and posed with Sarnoff, and had to negotiate with uh, Sarnoff and GE, but I still don't, that doesn't bring me to delivering flowers for Marconi to women, so. Um, so that's my view of the relationship uh, between the two, and it's not particularly based on citations. Um, that's interesting, yes, yes. I have a question, you mentioned that all the Marconi sites were designed by the same engineering company in New York, I think it was J.G. White. J.G. White designed the American Marconi girdle-around-the-earth stations, which were Stavanger, two in Massachusetts, two in New Jersey, two here in Hawaii, and probably the the Japanese.
0: Were they all the same architectural style,
1: that mission? The buildings are very similar uh, from the outside. Now, the dimensions may have uh, changed according to the requirements of the particular station. The Marconi um, and, at Marshall, the building looks the same, but it's much, much bigger than the one in, um, in Chatham. Yes? Why would they need such a big building in Marshall? Well, I think one of Marshall's problems was there was no population up there. So the people who were going to service that station all had to live there and um, they also built cottages for people who came with families. And I think, what did she tell me, 36 rooms or something in that uh, hotel? It's big. So I think that's, I think there was nothing up there. So they had to entertain, they had to feed themselves, um, and live their life up there. The other thing that absolutely amazed me, you've probably all been up there, but what a you know, beautiful sight it is, there weren't any trees then. It was like all the other hills. It was completely bare. And uh, it's, it's just amazing. So it, it was a pretty, I mean, it was a beautiful but a very isolated um, station. I imagine Bolinas was, too. You'll see a
2: lot of trees in Bolinas
1: now, too. Yeah. But I, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you was the arrangement usually was that the receiving station um, manipulated the transmitter by landline. That was true between... Um, uh, Marion and uh, Chatham. So, would Bolinas have been smaller? Because was this also were the transmissions also controlled uh, by the receiver at, at uh, Marshall?
2: The, the way we have it is that the um, it was that way for the maritime service, that's the ship to shore. Not that way for the transoceanic intercontinental service. They were both controlled by the. Central Radio Office in San Francisco. So the folks at Marshall, their job uh, was to just tune in the best signal they could, send that down to the Central Radio Office, and then the messages outgoing were sent to Bolinas from there. Mm-hmm. For the Marine Service, they actually had the operators manipulate the telegraph keys. And before World War Two, At they, uh, Well, the operators, be- for the Marine Service, KPH were at at Marshall in a corner of the operating room, corner of the point to point building at at Marshall. And so they were actually there with their telegraph keys and earphones, keying the transmitters of Belinius
1: for the Marine Service. Oh so for the Marine Service it was controlled then that's right. so yeah, that exactly. would have put more people at uh, Marshall than than uh, that's
2: right and that's how it is in fact today when we Still operating
1: the station at the same time. Well, I want to thank you all very much. Um, As uh, Carola said, um, we do have copies of uh, the book. They are $25 each, uh, cash or check, but it has two very special features. One is they're delivered immediately, and two, they're autographed at no extra charge. Thank you all very much.